0: I'm Daniel Libet. This is the NM Fishbowl Podcast. It's Monday, November 26, 2018. Now that we've all gorged ourselves on holiday turkey, we inevitably return this week to a leaner way of thinking. That's especially, if depressingly true, for the leaders of the University of New Mexico's athletic department, who, amidst repeat budget deficits and irresolute program cuts, have a new helping of trouble on their post-Thanksgiving platters. Their latest conundrum is whether to pay a $1.3 million buyout to Lobo football coach Bob Davey, who was suspended before the season because of conduct issues, and whose program just finished three and nine for the second consecutive year. If ever there was a time for some filthy rich guardian angel to swoop in and bail out the Lobos, now would seem to be it. So, before the tryptophan has completely worn off, I want you to close your eyes, presuming you're not operating a motor vehicle, and fantasize about just such a scenario. What if, at long last, the Maloof family or Bill Gates or whoever, decided to pony up not just a million dollars, but like several hundred million dollars. Wouldn't that be divine? Wouldn't that solve all the desperate and corrupting problems that have defined the recent history of Loboland? Not necessarily, says my guest today. Joshua Hunt is the author of the recent book, University of Nike, How Corporate Cash Bought American Higher Education. His book tells the story of the Faustian bargain made between the University of Oregon and its most famous alumnus-turned-benefactor, Nike founder, Phil Knight. Hunt, who is now based in Tokyo, has been a foreign correspondent for Reuters and has written for the New York Times, The New Yorker Magazine, The Atlantic, and numerous other publications. His book came about after he went to Eugene, Oregon in 2014 on assignment from The Times to cover the university's handling of a sexual assault scandal involving several of its men's basketball players. Hunt and I taped a one-hour conversation a couple weeks back in which we talked about what Oregon and its state's tax-paying public has been asked to tolerate in order to keep the swoosh cash coming. Say that ten times fast. I've often been asked and thought about what it would be like if, instead of blogging about a have-not, high-major wannabe like UNM, I were to instead focus on a Power 5 program. Our conversation today reaffirms my suspicion that while the dollar figures would no doubt be different, the bullshit would largely be the same. And so, without further ado, I give you Joshua Hunt. Joshua Hunt, welcome to the NM Fishbowl podcast. Thanks for having me so i was um put in touch with you by a guy named bill harbaugh um who i wanted to briefly mention because i uh, view him to be something in the uh, something of a spirit animal to me he is a a neuroeconomist at the university of oregon and a uh, tenured member of the faculty um, who has run a blog for a number of years that uh basically is is like a dumping ground of public records Um, requests that he has made to his own university, his own employer that um, has gotten him into repeated hot water um, but has also uh, gotten him anointed the Records King of Eugene. There's been articles written about him Um, and uh, much of what I've done over the last year and a half seems to be a a much uh, more tepid version of what Bill has done for his own school. I don't know if you um, if you connected with him in the course of your reporting on Oregon. Um, I assume that you might have, but what what have what is your interactions with Bill Bill have been like?
1: Uh, sure, of course I met Bill. Um, <clears throat> in fact, uh, uh, very early on, after very early on in the project, after after getting my book contract and. Um, telling bill that the working title for my book was university of nike which ended up of course becoming the title after it was uh, published um he uh gave me a, a gift of a, a coffee mug that he had, um, had made at some, at some point that said university of nike i think this was sort of a gag a gag uh type gift that he had made and uh i think maybe he sold them at some point on his blog uo matters or Maybe he just gave them out to other faculty members, but but I did meet Bill. i uh, pretty on in my um, in my reporting process, and um, I think Bill is a really. I mean, whether you agree with him on everything or not, because he is, like you said, he's sort of a lightning rod. Um, he has a lot of opinions, and unlike uh, unlike many people on campus, not everyone, but unlike many people on campus, he's really not afraid to share his opinions and be really clear about what he thinks uh, when it comes to Nike, athletics, you know uh, big money in, in, in higher education, big corporate cash in higher education, this kind of stuff. And
0: the other thing that he, and, uh, the other thing that he seems to have done is really epitomize the power of public records reporting. I mean, he's not a journalist, but insofar as he's behaving like one on this blog, Um, He he sort of has has demonstrated the power of public records reporting when it comes to covering either an athletics department at a university or a university writ large. And that certainly is is what I found in the book that you had written as well. And in in your reporting um, about the University of Oregon is it was driven by um, both what you found in public records and also your experience and challenge in acquiring public records and the, and the barricades and the blockades that a, uh, at a public university often throws up um, to prevent either members of the public or in particular journalists from from having access to things that you know everyone should be entitled to see.
1: Yeah this is this is what I was going to say next about Bill whether you whether you agree with his opinions or not he, he really does epitomize to me and, and he highlights something that's really important that I think many people don't know, which is that uh, the public in public records is you. It's not, it's you and, and your neighbor and and everyone else. It's um—it's not just journalists. Of course, it's very important that journalists have access to uh, public records because they uh, are very, you know, it, in speaking as a journalist, it, you know, in general, we have a lot more training in, in how to how to dig out public records that might have uh that might be of some particular interest to the to the public at large that might hold institutions accountable for their actions and, and we have uh of course we have the means to get the the get what we find out to uh, a broader number of people but it's very very important that uh that we remember that public records are for everyone and uh bill really you know does highlight that fact and um i think it's it's fantastic what he does that he's constantly out there just trying to get his hands on more and more public records which he shares on his blog what matters and um yeah i've had uh you know many wonderful interesting conversations with bill and i mentioned him only briefly in the book because um, you know I mentioned and I mean frankly uh, bill is is such a controversial figure and I wanted the book to be uh, fairly dis- fairly dispassionate as dispassionate as, as, as this kind of thing could be and um, so I tried uh, you know I didn't want to focus too much on really controversial campus figures like Bill less uh, the administration say, well, this is just, you know, uh, the opinion of some radical activists and some disgruntled professors and things like that. Um, because it's not frankly, you know, and, um, I did, uh, I did on the other hand, uh, mention a really important uh, incident with bill in the book. And, and, uh, this is, this is one in which, uh, this is an incident that occurred. a few. Years back, when some archivists were, were uh, first suspended, I think, and then fired at the University of Oregon for basically doing their job for giving for giving uh, public University of Oregon archives out to a professor who requested them, namely Bill. And um, the crime there was that, uh, according to the University of Oregon, the uh, the great sin that these people committed that they should. Had been fired for was that they didn't let the University of Oregon's general counsel first uh, pour over these records and um, redact them as heavily as they could, and so on and so forth. And what my reporting showed is that this this strategy of redacting and withholding records it is just that it's a strategy. It's a PR strategy. It has nothing to do with actual you know best practices. In terms of public records laws, or in terms of um, you know following their own rules. In fact, I argue the Office of Public Records at the University of Oregon regularly breaks the law, and the General Counsel's office uh, seems to abet them in doing so. Well,
0: I've certainly experienced that in my in, at, at the University of New Mexico. So let's let's get into the heart of the book, and and let me explain to you a little bit about how it hit me. It was very interesting to read this having my experience because for the last year and a half, I've been covering a university and an athletics department that's sort of on the other end of the spectrum from Oregon. New Mexico is a mid-major, fairly impoverished athletic department and, frankly, uh, university. And so all of my reporting has been set up against the backdrop of of a have-not institution. Um, And there's a fantasy that happens, or that I hear, and it's discussed at the University of New Mexico, that if only, you know, there was some wealthy benefactor who would come in and donate a boatload of money, um, you know, know, virtually all or, or many of the problems of the university and its athletics department, including many of the corruption problems of the university and its athletic department, would magically go away. And you tell a story in um, University of Nike about why that fantasy might not even be true, even if it could be had. That there's not necessarily a correlation between um, the well off, how rich an athletic department is thanks to the generosity of, of, a, of a donor or donors and how much easier um, it is to, uh, to keep things all together and to keep a cohesive Academic mission. Can you begin by kind of introducing my audience to the central character of the book, um, a, a person by the name of Dave Fronemeyer, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I'll just briefly outline uh, a bit about how I came to write the book and, and what the book is, is about. I, I went I went looking into this as a, a series of newspaper articles for the New York Times back in the spring of 2014. I was sent there, I was sent Eugene by the by the uh, sports editor of the New York Times to cover this unfolding issue, which seemed to be fairly straightforward in my mind. This University of Oregon freshman had accused three of the school basketball players of raping her at a house party and Then after two months of no one on campus, no one in the community hearing anything about this, no one knowing anything about this, uh, suddenly this very graphic police report was released to the media. And people, particularly journalists like me, were asking why, uh, why was this covered up for two months? Why did the school not pursue an administrative investigation? as they were required to under Title IX, as President Obama had then been reminding schools that they were required to do in in tandem with police investigations and criminal investigations, as opposed to sitting and twiddling their thumbs and waiting for the VA to say, well, there was booze involved, so we're not gonna press charges. And then saying, okay, well, the police aren't gonna, aren't gonna do anything, then we don't have to do anything either, I guess. No, that's PR cover. Title IX says very clearly that they're supposed to run their own investigation in parallel to a police investigation and, um, and you know, make administrative charges uh, where necessary. So they didn't do all this stuff. And instead, they treated this like a PR issue to be covered up. attorney general at the time. He was also a former state legislator. He ran for governor of Oregon unsuccessfully. And then in 1994, he ended up becoming the president of the University of Oregon after being, I think, dean of the law school for a few years. And um, Dave Frommeyer was a sort of born fundraiser. Uh, He had a nonprofit organization that he ran called the Fanconi Anemia Research Fund, which was dedicated to finding a cure for a rare genetic disorder. that three of his daughters suffered he He got very good at raising money for that. He was, when he unsuccessfully ran for governor, he raised more money than any gubernatorial candidate ever had in Oregon up until that point. Uh, and he was helped out by George uh, Bush Sr. who uh, came to Oregon to host a, a breakfast for him and help him raise all this money. And so right away, uh, Dave Kronmeier, Starts thinking. Okay, well, the thing to do is to raise outside money, to raise private money, to raise corporate money, and Nike seems to be the obvious choice. And he he's given an assist here by by the football team because the Oregon Ducks men's football team makes this kind of fluke run to the Rose Bowl in the 1994-1995 season, and um, Dave Fronmeyer suddenly realizes how much money there is to be made in going to a, a big bulls game and he also um he not just him but him and, and his top athletic staff uh you know they also realized what a uh what a uh what a boon this kind of you know uh, big athletics program is for enrollment or could be for enrollment and so while the uh, coaches and the athletic staff are, are gaga over the money that they, can, that they can get from TV contracts and so forth, uh, Dave Rodemeyer is, is looking at attracting more out-of-state students who pay higher tuition, and he's looking at using football to do it. And all they needed, uh, athletic, top athletic staff at the school said at the time was uh, an indoor practice facility for the football team, because all the top recruits were going to California. Instead of rainy Oregon. And so they uh, went to Phil Knight and asked for help. And he said, I got this, I'll help you out. And um, he starts paying a lot more attention now to the football program at his alma mater. And not coincidentally, Nike is trying to make inroads in, into football at this point, point not just college football, but the NFL. And they're following this kind of blueprint that they laid out with basketball where they dominated in college and then moved into the NBA with Michael Jordan and um, and so that's sort of the that's sort of the rough uh, outline of of the book and and my journey in in going to write it and um, you know I quickly discovered a lot of things uh, wrong with this with this system a lot of a lot of myths we'll call them a lot of myths about Big athletics have grown up over the years. Over the years, you know, there's first of all there's the myth that um, that uh, that this stuff is self-sustaining. I mean, these these programs become a drain on a lot of tuition-paying students who don't even like athletics. You know, may not may not know that they're helping support athletics because big donors like Phil Knight come in and help build all these big gleaming athletics facilities on campus. That's another thing that's attracted all these out of state students and helps attract the best football players who can make the football team better or the basketball team better. And, um, you know, they look nice, but these things, these buildings eat up uh, a single one might eat up 400,000, 500,000 a year in, uh, in costs, in maintenance costs and things like this and staffing costs and that money comes out of uh, general funds uh, which are paid for and replenished by tuition dollars and some and often these are facilities that only athletes are allowed to use so you've got you've got uh, tuition paying students who are barely hanging on subsidizing athletics in ways that they don't quite realize so that's uh that's one problem Another problem is that these programs tend to behave like a teenager who's been given their parents credit card. Uh, they, they go out there and they spend wildly beyond their means. I mean, the headlines will say, you know, uh, the University of Oregon or whichever school, this school or that school is building a 100 million dollar facility and so and so is helping pay for it. What the fine print says is that they're paying for maybe 50 million, 60 million, 70 million, and the school has to come up with the rest of the money, and it's not often other donors who give that money or at least the lion's share of it because if a if a stadium's already named for some other guy and he's paid for half of it, why are you going to pay for half of it and not have your name on it? I mean, you'll get some smaller gifts so that you can you know be associated with it get some box seats or something but um the lion's share of the rest of that money ends up coming from things like state bonds which the university of oregon relies on heavily in cases like this right now uh, there's a uh, billion dollar uh, uh project called the knight campus for accelerating scientific impact going on at the university of oregon and you know, Phil Knight has pledged to pay for half of it, for, for and um, you know, he's paying for half of half a billion dollars, which leaves the school on the hook for the rest of it. And they're still uh, several hundred million dollars short, and they keep going back to the state legislature asking for more bonds. These bonds come with hefty interest payments. Uh, you know, in the end, they end up costing you know taxpayers uh, help help uh, shoulder the cost of these things. In ways that are not celebrated as widely as, uh, you know, these alleged gifts by billionaires like Phil Knight, gifts that are usually tax deductible. By the way, what um, what I what I
0: find that, so, what I find so interesting, just to jump in real quickly, is is the way in which, as you're describing now, and as the book really fleshes out, the phenomenology is geared towards making universities and ultimately taxpayers spend money. Even if a lot of private money is coming in, the way that this the system <clears throat> operates is not designed to ever have private money supplement or replace public money. Instead, what happens is private money creates new avenues for more public money to be needed to complete the projects, and that's sort of what you're describing and what really goes on at a place, you know, again among the among the wealthier college sports programs as as typified in in your book about oregon um you know it's it's the same thing i mean it's it, it,
1: it you're you're right it's exactly the same thing and to, to to make it even to make this even broader to broaden this conversation uh, in 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 and and talk about something that's been in the news recently let's look at amazon and its decision to put its uh its decision to put some of its new facilities in New York, in Long Island city. And I think the other one is uh, in the Washington DC area in Virginia. Um, This comes after months of going around saying, uh, we're having this big kind of sweepstakes. Let's see where Amazon is going to put its, uh, its next facility. Where, where, where is Amazon going to create all these jobs, right? All these great jobs and all these, Towns and cities across America start clamoring and saying, me, me, please. And the politicians, the local representatives, the mayors of these cities, they're going out there and begging and, and saying, um, look, if you come here, we'll give you this kind of tax incentive or that kind of tax incentive. And, and then in the end, after, you know, making all these hurting uh, towns and cities beg and plead, and say, please pick me, they end up going sort of probably where they would have gone anyway, where they where they can have uh, significant influence and where they're winning very favorable tax breaks. I think I, I, I saw one figure <coughs> that said that the tax breaks that uh, Governor Cuomo offered to Amazon, the tax breaks and other incentives are gonna equal something like $63,000 for every job that Amazon creates uh, in the city. So they're basically paying Amazon uh, probably more money per job than, than the job is actually gonna generate in, in wages. And so it's exactly the same kind of corporate behavior in, um, in big athletics and college football and higher education. There's, I, I tell people there's a reason why Bill Knight is who he is. There's a reason why Nike's been so successful. There's a reason why he is a billionaire. He never walks away with the bad end of the deal. If he's doing business with your university, your university is losing. Uh, this is not a uh, equally mutually beneficial relationship.
0: And it's also and, so, and it's also not ultimately a philanthropic relationship, which is I think true about a number of these gifts. You know, quote unquote gifts to athletic departments is that th- these are business transactions, either, either to promote a a company um, that ha- that holds a naming rights or in Nike, it, it, you know, the the business interest goes a lot deeper at the University of Oregon. But there's this misnomer, and and it's and it's I think a misnomer that's even confused the uh, uh, the IRS about what what really. What really amounts, or what these transactions really amount to, when people are giving um, money to a university and then slapping their name on a building, um, it it's it's not it's not merely philanthropy.
1: Right. I mean, I I, I often tell people that my, my opinion is that that Phil Knight uh, doesn't give money away. He invests it. He expects a return. Uh, and there's a reason why, I mean, let's just take one example from the book. Um, Phil Knight has a very, uh, lucrative Phil Knight and his company, Nike at the time, at the time he's chairman and CEO, he, um, uh, back in the, uh, uh late nineties and early offs, he has at this time a, a really lucrative and promising relationship with the university of Oregon, not just. Personally because he's giving these buildings that are that are, you know named after him or the people that are important to him Um, So he's not just sort of legacy building He's also doing these big money business deals that are really beneficial to Nike, you know Like I said, this was a really important time for Nike to be branching out into and you know more NFL contracts more college football contracts that's huge huge money for them uh, because the college football in particular, because the players don't get paid. And so, you know, for relatively little investment in making these all school deals with the schools, you get not only to make sure that Nike's the only brand that's sold on yeah. campus at the campus bookstore and so forth, but you also get to you know, turn all these student athletes into walking billboards uh, for pennies on the dollar. It's a very good deal for for Nike. So so why then in the late nineties does Phil Knight start giving millions of dollars to this nonprofit organization run by the University of Oregon president, Dave Frommeyer. You know, he begins giving a million, sometimes two million dollars a year to the Sanconia Anemia Research Fund. Like I said before, this <clears throat> this organization run by Dave Frommeyer and dedicated toward finding a cure for Fanconi anemia. Uh, why give money to that organization? Why do it secretly? Why not give money to some other cancer organization? Why not? Um, and at the same time, he's, he's uh, also quietly paying a supplement to the University of Oregon president's salary, something very unprecedented, uh, you know, to be paying directly $40,000 a year towards Dave Kronmeier's salary. Why isn't, why isn't Phil Knight at this time supplementing the salary of, um, of someone at some, you know, someone with some other job, someone, someone in some other position at the university or, or some university? Why, uh, why focus on, on that guy? Well, I, I argue in my, and the narrative of my book, uh, argues that it was so he could have, uh, leverage, so he could have control, so he could, so he could, um, exercise leverage if he had to uh, over his investment in the University of Oregon. And um, I claim that that is what a lot of this stuff is about. I mean, imagine, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's out, it's outrageous to me that, um, that a CEO could secretly give money to a nonprofit organization controlled by the president of the university while he's doing business, very profitable business with that university. Uh, it's absolutely outrageous.
0: The uh, So this amounts to sort of what I what I uh, understood as to be the, the central kind of bombshell of the book or bombshell thesis, which was, as you explained, Phil Knight sort of lording over an individual who happened to be the president of the university, these annual bequests to a nonprofit designed to find a cure for a deadly disease that his children's that the uh that frohmeyer's children suffered for um basically to have him in his grasp to have for for knight to have Fronmeyer in his grasp now i noticed in some of the coverage um last month about the book that the that Fronmeyer's family has pushed back and, and somewhat aggressively um on on that premise and on some of your reporting can you can you articulate where what their counter position has has been, and um, and then respond to it?
1: Uh, I would argue that that they have not pushed back aggressively. If someone said these things about you, if someone said that um, if someone described you doing the things that I described Dave Frohmeier doing, and um, and and they didn't actually do them uh i mean I, I would think the pushback would be uh much more significant i would uh, i mean i don't i think the, the denials have been very tepid and i think they've been exactly what's expected um you know their claim more or less is that this 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 one key incident that i described did not happen they say they you know, Phil Knight never withheld money from the Sanctonia Anemia Research Fund over at the Supreme with Dave Frommeyer. Their own tax records state otherwise. <laughs> their own, <clears throat> the, uh, pub, even the public sections of their, of their 990 forms, which they filed with the IRS, state very clearly that, that Phil Knight did not give any money to the Sanctonia Anemia Research Fund in the year 2000. And in fact, in their 2001 tax filing, they explicitly state um, this donor gave two million dollars in 1999 and two million dollars in 2001, and he did not give any money in any other year. So that's pretty clear. That's pretty explicit. Uh, let
0: me just let me have, let me just jump in, just wait, so that I, let me just jump in, so my so I we, I don't uh, confuse the the audience. I, I sort of jumped ahead. Um, the the uh, this this dates back and and help me where you think I'm I'm missing a point here. This dates back to an incident where Knight was giving both contributions to the University of Oregon, um, as you said, starting in the mid-90s, and and also to this research foundation that was important to the university's president. And then at a certain point, he decided not to, or, or or the donation stopped, and that correlated with some discord that had occurred between the university and with Knight. Can you just give a little primer on that just to kind of close the loop on the on, on, on where the where their relationship headed?
1: Well, that I mean that's more or less it without describing the entire content of the book. Basically, there were there was a, a, a very strong anti-sweatshop campus protest movement going on. The University of Oregon became a part of it and signed on with an agreement with this group called the Worker Rights Consortium, the WRC. give $10 million a million at a time. And you know, they've only gotten about $3 million of that money so far. So uh, they, they have uh, they, they they do important work. Uh, I should say the Fanconi and Amy Research Fund does very important work, life saving work, and they want to keep it going. And um, Phil Knight is uh, right now the person that's helping to keep it going. Uh, $1 million at a time one year at a time. So for the next seven years, at least, uh, I, I um, don't suspect any change in posture from them in terms of, of denying it. The um, what what one of the things again. I, sorry, go ahead. But again, I but again, I, I say it's accurate. I think anyone who reads the book um, will be convinced uh,
0: because the, the 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 facts are are, are pretty clear. In all, it's sort of you, This is just a very glaring example of what I think is is not uncommon, which is in in college athletics across the country. Which is you know these decisions, these financial decisions, ultimately come down to individuals who are making them. So yes, in in the way in in principle, it's the University of Oregon um, and its relationship with Nike. But what this really is is about. Two people, Phil Knight and Dave Frohnmeyer, and their and their personal incentives and their individual incentives that not are not necessarily aligned with the broader um, betterment of, of a university. And this is, I mean, there, there's just a myriad of these examples in almost every similar public university um, and, frankly, private college across the country. Where you know th- this is this is one of the what one of the things that drives both higher education decisions and certainly college athletic decisions is what what is in the personal interest of the you know handful of people who are making those decisions and um, you know just the, this personal story about Frommeyer and 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 his cause celeb and and the kind of the emotional connection to it um, really just kind of brings that to life but i i feel like this story is, is, is universal in, in many ways.
1: Let me, yeah, well, look, I think, I think, uh, I think it's worth pointing out. I want to, um, I want to redirect because I think, um, this is sort of one of the, one of the things we see recently, not just in this realm, but in, in politics and especially in politics is this kind of raising of the bar of what even gets our attention. Um, like I said, this incident with Fronmeyer, it happened, but uh, quite aside from the distraction of uh, Lynn Frommeyer or some are saying that it didn't happen, quite aside from that, um, even before this happened, we should have been outraged. We should have been outraged over the fact that NICE was secretly giving this money to the San Antonio Indian Research Fund in the first place, that's not okay. It is not okay for billionaires to secretly give money that personally benefits the circumstances of a public servant, an important public servant uh, like like a university president, a president of a public university, a state university. That's not okay. I argue that it would be outrageous if we found out that um, you know the CEO of Google was secretly giving uh money to something that benefited the uh president of mit or something like this i mean it would be a major major scandal i think we need to uh remember to be outraged over these, some of these things that we that we've gotten used to and i think we need to also keep in mind that this points to the only way forward which is transparency and accountability all over on my book tour people keep saying oh you know this this highlights the importance of uh, integrity and leadership and you talked about you know people being out for their own interests and this sort of stuff um well whether or not you've got someone that's totally self-interested or someone that is uh maybe a little uh that maybe wants to do the right thing but is a little conflicted as, as as seems to have been the case with Dave Kronmeier um or whether you've got someone that's totally, you know, unimpeachable in terms of their integrity, the only way the public has of knowing and of trusting that their public servants are doing the right thing is transparency, which means strong open records laws and public records laws and punishing public institutions who do not abide by those laws, punishing them when they they break those laws, and, you know, strong uh, government and taxpayer accountability accountability and oversight for public institutions. And, you know, a good start, uh, uh, I think, would be, because people keep asking me, what's the answer for reversing this trend? i say, well, a good start would be to tax these corporations at the appropriate level. And so if we have uh, a university being sponsored by Nike or Amazon or some other big corporation, let them be sponsored with tax money with tax dollars let these corporations sponsor public higher education uh, with their tax dollars in a totally transparent way that does not lead to these private systems where they end up with control over a public institution
0: the uh on the other side the university side or, or the university foundation side has made a concerted effort i think across the board in recent years to raise in the public consciousness, the importance of donor confidentiality, and so I filed a, as my listeners would, no doubt, um, no, I filed a public records. I filed a couple of public records lawsuits against the University of New Mexico, including one against their foundation, um, along the precisely along the for the reasons that you just uh, that you just articulated, the importance of knowing how money is spent, who is providing contributions, whether they're getting some sort of benefit from a university as part of those arrangements. And the University of New Mexico, and in this case, its foundation, essentially argued that that's all fine and well, but we really need to be sensitive to the confidentiality of people who donate money, you know, uh, to, to a university, which is is laughable and, and risable and, and, and sort of totally um, ignorant of the, of the fact, perhaps intentionally ignorant of the fact that a lot of the people who donate to universities also get something in return. At the bare minimum, they make it a tax break, um, but often it's, there's much more to those relationships. Uh, but that, that seems to be a fight uh, in terms of a legal fight, a legal public records fight that's being waged across the country in various different states um george mason there was an an advocacy group at the george mason university that filed a lawsuit against that school seeking uh records related to the Koch brothers and their contributions there um this is you know there's there's a myriad of cases you know and and hopefully more well look
1: you know as a as a journalist you know uh i'm not i'm not an activist i'm a journalist and and so my default position is just usually why and how so you know, when I get an answer like that from a university or, or any other public institution or public servant that they're saying, this needs to be secret. I mean, my, my immediate instinct is to, is to find out somehow why it needs to be secret and how it is made secret. Um, so it's a very important, important story that demands a lot more attention. these, uh, these, these university foundations how they work how they function how they keep uh, money how they keep donations secret how they obscure from the public what kind of money is pouring into the uh, public universities uh, that their tax dollars help support and um, and why you know so how and why and uh, it's, it's a question really worth asking because this all As my book describes, this all predates that. This goes back to the Cold War and universities having these big research departments built up by government money uh, because the government was obsessed with all this research that might help us win the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And um, and when the Cold War died down and the government started shifting money away from universities and towards uh, think tanks and places like that—you um, know, those those research departments and those researchers and those academics—went looking for money elsewhere, and the the place they found it is is corporations. So that's sort of the the beginnings of all this, and the very worst things that were done, the very worst experiments that were done, uh, for example. Uh, things associated with the MK Ultra program that the CIA run, ran back in the 1960s, where they did really terrible things um, like, oh, for instance, giving LSD to unsuspecting civilians, having uh, having hiring prostitutes uh, to go to a party and ghost guys with LSD and just see what happens to them. Um, uh, so <clears throat> stuff like this uh, was was done very covertly. The whole the whole point was to hide that the money was coming from the CIA that it was coming from the government so that these academics could keep their reputations. Uh, even though their reputations, um, were all that was important to them, their, their sense of integrity when it came to, uh, doing these kinds of unethical experiments, that was, that was far less important to them. And so, uh, that's something i think is really useful to keep in mind today as we think about the question of why why does this money need to be um secret and it's a very important question to ask now that we have new types of new types of uh so-called higher education philanthropy i mean this uh night campus for accelerating scientific impact at the university of oregon is very much not an athletic facility It's, it's in fact, it's, uh, the press releases would have you believe that it's this great thing and it's this proof that, um, that Nike is not just giving money to athletics, but they're investing in academics. Well, um, who, who, it, it's geared toward uh, shortening the distance that, that academics and researchers have to travel to get to industry which means close relationships with corporations like pharmaceutical companies and so forth. And there there are big loopholes in our public records laws that allow for communications, say for example, between uh, researchers and corporate executives at a pharmaceutical company. There are big loopholes that allow these kinds of communications to be kept secret under the guise that they might reveal trade secrets. And so we could be seeing in the future even less transparency when it comes to these kinds of partnerships between corporations and universities. And that's very, very concerning.
0: I wanna return um, back to where you started your reporting again. So back to the uh, the rape case in 2014 and some of what you uh, elaborated on it in the book. Um, one of the things I found interesting was a nugget that you, you, you reported that at the University of Oregon, at least as of four years ago, the campus police chief was hired on a rolling one-year contract um, and was overseen by the position of the vice president of student affairs. Um, This is, again, one of these kind of universal issues that just keeps popping up at all, all sorts of different universities, which is how a campus law enforcement arm um investigates allegation alleged crimes involving uh high-profile student athletes um can you tell me a little bit about how the setup was at oregon that made this particularly um dicey uh both in terms of how they investigated this alleged rape involving um Three basketball players, uh, and then also how that constrained the efforts of those like you, journalists, from finding out what was going on um, in the wake of this of this rape case.
1: Well, without getting into granular detail, basically the the problem uh, arose from treating this matter and other matters like it uh, as though they were PR problems rather than criminal complaints with very clear rules about how they were supposed to be handled. So as I said, and as President Obama reminded people uh, around this time, reminded universities and their presidents around this time, he sent around, um, you know, he had this whole task force to send around this big, um, this big report uh, highlighting you know, how they could better fight campus sexual assault. And one of the things he made clear was that universities have a responsibility to investigate immediately. They can no longer just pass the case off to the local police department and say, uh, we'll wait and see if they file charges and then make our decision. They're not supposed to do that. Title IX, these set of federal laws, Title IX, Says that they are supposed to investigate immediately and come up with their own conclusion. They also have, they don't have a similar, um, this is not a criminal court of law type set of criteria. There's no, um, the the evidence standards are, are much lower uh, with administrative charges like this university. So they don't need to be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But uh they need to be found that there is a it needs to be found that there's a preponderance of evidence saying that this sexual assault either occurred or, or did not occur and um in this case even the even the district attorney when saying publicly that he would not press that he would not uh, press forward with with criminal charges he said uh and and university uh, officials also said that they have no doubt that this incident happened uh but they they simply weren't going to uh, move forward with criminal charges because there was alcohol involved um which is in itself crazy and which would not be uh, a hurdle in terms of the administrative charges that the the school should have brought the problem is that if they followed the rules if they had logged this report in the clary log which is a public log that federal law requires that schools keep at their campus public safety office somewhere else on campus where student reporters and students generally can, can find it. And it's a log of certain violent crimes that they're required to let the campus community know about when they've been reported. If they had logged this, uh, this sexual assault report in the Clary log, instead of keeping it out of there, if they had treated this uh, as a serious Title IX investigation from the beginning, rather than a PR problem to be dealt with, and if they had um, thought to warn the campus community uh, that, that this crime had been reported uh, just a spitting distance from Hayward Field, then um, it would have thrown up red flags that, that would have led back to these basketball players, I suspect. And that would have been a scandal unfolding right at the time when when Oregon is participating in NCAA basketball tournament play and getting farther, I might add than they usually do, to the extent that the head coach Dana Altman got a, a bonus, I think, of forty thousand dollars for getting that far into the tournament that year. With the help of these, of these, um, of some of these accused uh, rapists, uh, I should add that these guys uh, continue to deny uh, that they committed this crime. Um, they unsuccessfully sued the school. Um, a few of them, but, um, but, uh, anyway, uh, again, this stems from not treating cases like this as criminal complaints and as administrative complaints that have a clear set of rules by which you're supposed to investigate them and follow up on them and instead treating them as a PR problem. And so, You know, you've got the uh, police, the campus police, uh, telling these administrators about it right away. These administrators telling these communications professionals, these public relations people, whatever you want to call them, telling them about it, and then saying, "Okay, well, here's what we're going to do. Here's our here's our crisis communications uh, plan for when the story breaks, so we can seem like we're a bunch of good." guys who are really concerned about the safety of students uh, at our university and meanwhile as my reporting shows in the book they were concerned with just about everything else besides that
0: you I, i the figure just stood out for me in the book do you remember off the top how much oregon wanted to charge you for the um records requests you made of of messages sent between the Oregon communication staffers and, and administrators,
1: it was just over nine
0: thousand dollars. So, and, and did they ever explain to you the grounds for which, uh, by which they wanted to uh, obtain that amount of money to hand over records?
1: Well, uh, if I didn't need them to explain it to me because I went and found someone who used to work in the office. Public Records at the University of Oregon, and they explained to me in detail, and you can read about that in the book as well.
0: The, uh, the New York Times, who you were writing initially for on these stories, also got involved legally, if I understand correct.
1: There was an appeal. There was not a lawsuit. We appealed. The legal department at the New York Times uh, did appeal, and the appeal was— uh, we did not win the appeal uh, patty perlow the uh, then uh patty perlow the district attorney for eugene um or for lane county i suppose um uh you know was not persuaded by our argument that um that we should have these records and um incidentally she's not often persuaded uh, to give um to give journalists the records they're supposed to have and um You know, uh, one wonders whether she would be any more persuaded uh, had she known about what was going on inside the Office of Public Records at the University of Oregon and what kind of rule-breaking and law-breaking was going on there.
0: Have you heard since the the publication of the book, have you heard from anybody of significance at the University of Oregon? Have they made any public comments at either at the level of the university president or even a spokesperson for the school?
1: Well, the school itself made a one very general statement to just the various just the various media that interviewed me, um, OPB and place, Oregon Public Broadcasting and places like that. It's a very very generic statement that says I'm digging up the past and engaging in speculation and all this sorts of stuff. Did you I had a very tepid, a very tepid denial
0: obviously to go in and to, to write this book you had a, a perspective that this was something that deserved attention if not something stronger than that did you were you surprised at the end of your reporting about how deep the rabbit hole goes or or, or did you assume that this is this is the kind of story that you would find? Um, at a place like Oregon
1: Uh, no I was very surprised I I made no assumptions coming into it Uh, like I said I I I mean uh, I suppose maybe my initial impression was that there was some covering up going on Um, I had some suspicions about you know what I would find in terms of the communications department and the PR department, and the Office of Public Records and so forth. Um, it was much worse than I could have dreamed. And um, I would say in general, things were worse than I had imagined. I mean, I, I, like I said, for me, this book was all about answering questions. Why? Why this relationship with Nike? How did it unfold? This sorts of this, this, sort, this sort of stuff. And, um, you know, I was very surprised to, to learn how far Phil Knight would go to exercise control at the University of Oregon. I was very surprised to learn uh, about how far uh, Dave Frommeyer would go to please Phil Knight. I was very surprised to learn many uh, of the things that I learned about how the University of Oregon operates today. And I was very, uh, surprised to, and, and, and saddened to find that this is something that's now happening at university all across the country as they get defunded at uh, increasingly shocking levels by taxpayers.
0: Well, Josh, I, we've, we've gone for about an hour. I, I appreciate your time. It's, it's a wonderful book. It's an interesting book for anybody who's familiar with a similar school um, that has a lot of money coming into it from some sort of corporate benefactor I think it's interesting as I said earlier to someone like myself who's sort of entrenched in in following a school that often talks about dreaming of having somebody like Phil Knight walk through the door it's a it can be a poison pill at the end of the day as I think you you well document it uh, as, as it turned out for the University. Yeah, of I-
1: I mean, I'll say as my as my parting thought, I'll just say you know there's a reason why top administrators think this is a great thing and a good blueprint to follow. What I call the University of Nike blueprint, and that's because university presidents have become it's become a professional position. In the old days, a president would rise through the faculty and become president of the university. President of the university. These days, there's these. Uh, presidents who, uh, you know, stick around for two, three, maybe four years, five years is a pretty long stretch at this point, And then they move on to another school for a bigger paycheck. And what gets them that bigger paycheck at that better school is building something or getting something built, and either putting their name on it or having their name associated with it. And um, so that's why they love a donor like Phil Knight, because he he can help them build something that will cement their legacy at the school. So they could say, so they can say to the next school that's going to give them a bigger paycheck, look what I did. I got this billionaire to build this great, huge, expensive building. Isn't that great? And uh, I can maybe do something similar for your school. And I'll I'll leave it at that.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate the time and good luck with the rest of your book touring.
1: Thanks
0: so much. And so, there you have it. I would again like to thank my guest, Joshua Hunt. You can find an accompanying article to this podcast and all my LOBO-related content at nmfishbowl.com. If you would like to send me a question or comment, you can do so by emailing editor at nmfishbowl.com. Or if you would like to argue in defense of Nike's wage practices, you can tweet me at nmfishbowl.com, all one word. The NM Fishbowl Podcast is available for downloading on iTunes. If you head over there, please like and subscribe. I should note, however, that I'm planning to wind down this bad boy by the end of the year in lieu of a rebranded, nationally focused college sports podcast set to launch sometime in early 2019. I will provide additional details of that in upcoming episodes. It is for this reason that some guests I had been planning to host here, I've instead asked to hold off and join me on the new podcast. In the meanwhile, there are still some New Mexico-related conversations I'm very much looking forward to have. Upcoming guests include New Mexico in-depth reporter Jeff Proctor, who has been in a protracted public records fight with Governor Susana Martinez. And I'm also planning to speak with KRQE investigative reporter Larry Barker, who broke the story about former UNM AD Paul Krebs's Scotland trip that has been the cause of so much scandal and headache for the university. What does not cause a headache is the song you hear in the background, which comes from the Freak Fandango Orchestra's Requiem for a Fish. As always, I appreciate you lending me your ears. And until next time, I'm Daniel Libet.